2: takou shkan shkan no om pikel na iyo makaka ler akankhan takou e chaki e ke on ona o ke chila mani pikte makake de o ke ga oshikita
3: Aloha kakou, e komo mai. Greetings and good day. Welcome, my relatives. I shake your hand with good feelings in my heart, and it's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from Mokunui, the biggest island of the illegally occupied Hawaiian kingdom. I'm Anne Keala Kelly, sitting in for your host, Teokas and Ghost Horse. This is all-Native hosted, all-Native produced, First Voices Radio, now in its 30th year of broadcasting. Our First Voices Radio producer is the incomparable Liz Hill, and the man himself, Malcolm Byrne, is our in-studio engineer. You can hear us on Buzzsprout, Apple iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms, and you can go to firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for the archive, downloading, and listening. Now, as Teokasen would say, let's count coup. Last week, the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania Conference took place in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I mention that for two reasons. One is because First Voices radio listeners should know that one of the topics at the conference was Japan's plan to begin a 30 year long project of dumping what will be close to, if not more than a million tons of radioactive waste from their Fukushima disaster into the Pacific Ocean. As you can imagine, the indigenous peoples of the Pacific are opposed to this act of ecocide, which would ultimately be genocide against the people who depend on the ocean for their physical and cultural survival. And reason number two is because our guest for the entire hour today was attending the conference when we recorded this interview. Rani Kareni, West Papuan activist, educator, musician, and advocate for the United Liberation Movement of West Papua will join us to discuss the history of Indonesia's brutal occupation and the struggle of the indigenous peoples in West Papua as they are being wiped out in what has been described as a slow motion genocide. And we'll also play a few songs recorded by his group, the Black Orchid String Band, about love, memory, the hope for freedom, and the immeasurable grief of the ongoing colonial violence endured by the original peoples of West Papua. In honor of the hundreds of thousands of West Papuan lives that have been taken by the Indonesian government and those who fight on in West Papua, we begin this week's show with the Black Orchestring Band's recording of the West Papuan Anthem. Aloha, Rani, and welcome to First Voices Radio. I'm, I'm really honored and pleased to be able to talk with you about your country, West Papua, the movement to free West Papua, and your work as an activist and artist. And I really appreciate that you were able to step away from the Nuclear Connections Conference for a few minutes to do this interview.
1: Aloha, and thank you for having me on this amazing First Voices Radio.
3: The audience for this is international, but it's also mainly North America. I mean, I'm I'm doing this from Hawaii, but the show is broadcast across the United States. And so I want to start off with some historical background for listeners who don't know where West Papua is, or don't understand why it's separate from the rest of Papua. Can you share with us part of that history?
1: Thank you. Um, I would like to begin firstly to acknowledge my ancestors in the land of Papua, and The resilience, the determination, like many indigenous people around the world, that we continue to fight for our sovereign rights, for our human dignity, and also for our land, which I would like to say that our sovereignty never ceded by colonizer or oppressor with their definition of sovereignty or any uh, concept that they wanted to impose. So I want to acknowledge and pay that respect to our pioneers, And um, secondly, in terms of West Papua and like many sovereignty struggles and movements, um, West Papua continues to fight a national liberation struggle for full independence from the Indonesian brutal occupation, which goes back in time just prior to the Second World War. This is in the 1930s when two Dutch explorers went to the region and took some photos and explored one of the last wonders of the world with beautiful, diverse flora and fauna. And they wrote an article about this island, New Guinea, and it was published in New York Times. And then back then, interest from the US, as the Second World War ends, as we know in history with the victors of the second world war um, setting the agenda which is currently the monster that we know the united nation um, setting agendas here and there determining what is best for them and continue we continue to see how systemic racism the structural violence that they can just unilaterally do at the expense of the indigenous people so in the 40s as the Dutch at the time still administered the region, along with Indonesia and other parts of the region, with the expansion of the European into this part of the world, began to um, going through that process with the UN, the colonization process, which West Papua was a and still until today a non self governing territory, but given as I said, the, the victors deciding and setting the agenda, and so. When the Indonesia proclaimed for independence in '45, after the uh, Second World War in '49, did overthrow um, nearly two hundred years of um, Dutch colonization. So for Indonesia, that liberation, they used that concept of where they can expand their former colonizers' territory. So West Papua in early '60s were undergoing the self determination process, Indonesia used the proxy war in the 60s, particularly the, the Cold War period, and tried to really expand their power. But uh, wait, but wait a second,
3: Rani, I have to interrupt you for a second. Papua was just one country, or was it always West Papua and Papua?
1: One country, West Papua. So, so
3: still, so in like that post-World War II era when the United Nations was, they had the list of territories to be decolonized, was was Papua on that list?
1: It was. The Dutch list, listed it and preparing it, 10-year uh, roadmap for full independence in early 70s.
3: I see. So and Indonesia, as you're saying... In the
1: 60s, you know, yes. In the 60s. Um, used the opportunity through the Cold War and it play off, basically playing off the the Soviets and the the U.S. interests. And at that time, as we know, the situation in Cuba where the U.S. were scared of the missiles that was already placed there. And so under the presidency of John F. Kennedy and the strategic geopolitical interest goes back to the natural resources. Using the CIA under the, the former director, Alan Dulles um, at the time did mastermind to really set up a puppet government, which was under Suharto to overthrow Sukarno. And it was also funding and aiding the Indonesia as just another extension into occupying Papua at the time. And back under the Dutch, we were we were registered or called Dutch, New Guinea, and the Eastern part um, is the British and also German. But when um, German lost, um, there was a big chunk of that transferred to the British and then later to Australia. And then in 75, Australia gave Papua New Guinea their full independence. But for West Papua case, it was a bit different from the Dutch. Then in the 60s, the Dutch knew late 50s to early 60s, The Dutch knew that Indonesia is really playing off the the Soviets and the U.S. at the time, and also already um, bringing in the the Soviet submarines really closer to the waters, where it was a matter of time that Australia would be under attack at the time. So that fear, the domino theory, fear comes really big at the time. So to appease Indonesia, West Papua was sold. So it was... We pay the price for the war, and now what is happening the genocide, the ethnocide we're paying the price of someone else's security and. Uh, economic and geopolitical interests.
3: Oh, sure. So the false security of colonialism, right? We need to destroy right. this, these people in their country in order to have our safety in the so-called West. But we're talking about Dutch, German, Australian. What are they doing in Papua and West Papua? What is? Why the interest? What are they taking? Help people understand. You mentioned some of the most diverse life forms are there in Papua and West Papua. And I know throughout the Pacific, really, it's like that. So, but I definitely where you are, what are these foreign colonial powers throughout the past, you know, almost century? What are they doing there? Why do they want it?
1: The, the wealth of the natural resources is what powers interest lies. In. It's not human lives or human rights. It's that it's about the the wealth of the natural resources. As I mentioned, in the 1930s, there was that exploration um, sparks this interest. And so that fast forward to 1961. But what, but what are the specifically,
3: US... what are those resources you're talking about so that people know what the wealth of West Papua is that's being taken? What, what is it specifically, these so-called resources?
1: The island of New Guinea definitely got the um, third largest um, rainforest after the Amazon and the Congo. The gold res- reserves and uh, copper. West Papua has uh, the has the one of the largest gold uh, op- mining operation at the moment, which is a U.S. company. Uh, What's the name of that company? Shines, it's the Freeport,
3: and that's an American mining um, company right now that is mining the gold out of West
1: Papua. It is yes, and and then of course the British pre- Petroleum for oil and gas and nickel. Company from Australia, as well as the the fishing, not to mention the fishing um, industry by the 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 Taiwanese fishing boats and Japanese fishing boat and West Papua, until now even still got some of the reserves, gold reserves, and uh, even the the unique species of birds, the bird of paradise, that cannot be found in anywhere else but only on that island of New Guinea. That was also exploited basically. And some of the beautiful artifacts, which, yeah, after the Second World War, were the Rockefeller, one of the son, Michael Rockefeller, a photographer, and went with this company, Freeport. Um, back then, there was a, a name was different, but under Rockefeller, and went there for some expedition and taking photographs, and then came came across the amazing uh, one of the tribal group called Asmat um Bispol. So all of this kind of like culminated into this interest from the West, particularly the u s, and influencing that with their allies, Australia, the British. And when they saw that opportunity to really grab hold of the region, then that Cold War period became um, a reason or to legit- legitimize that that occupation. And so in sixty one the u s decided to broker a deal between Indonesia and the Netherlands without consultation of the indigenous papuans and the indigenous leaders at the time so in 1962 um, new york agreement it's called was established and that agreement sets the blueprint for the mining company to be operating five years after that agreement and two years later after the mining agreement for a process of the one man one vote but the manner in which that process taking place in 1969, the Indonesia uh, government used one of their cultural approach. They called musyawara, musyawara meaning bringing a collective of indigenous church leaders to a room and under coercion, asking the question: integration or independence? And at a gunpoint, those leaders have to make the decision. So that 1969 process of that one man, one vote was a whitewash, definitely. And it was an act of terrorism, really. Act of terrorism, act of no choice. Yes. We as Papuans we call it act of no choice. Mm-hmm. Two years prior to that, the Freeport McMoRan already signed a contract with the Indonesian government to operate, but they waited until this act of no choice to kick off. And then the operation just takes over from there. Since the 1962, from that agreement to the, that one-man-one one vote or act of no choice, up until now, we are prisoners in our own land. We are isolated from media. We are isolated from any human rights organizations, international human rights organizations. Not even UN Human Rights Commissioner can visit West Papua.
3: In the Pacific, we'll often refer to what's happening in West Papua as genocide. So can you give listeners an idea of, like, since this all really became kind of a hellscape for Papuans, approximately how many Papuans have either been murdered or disappeared? Talk a little bit about the actual conditions that you're referring to.
1: Yeah, the conditions on the ground at the time of that late 1969 to 1970. Massive, massive military operation. And the manner in which Indonesia came into that region after that act of no choice, it's like the winners of war. They came in with military parachutes. They came with the massive naval um, ships, Navy ships, and infantry. It was like they just won a battle. um, And they were forcing the Dutch um, remaining people and even Papuan collaborators with Dutch or they viewed them as collaborators of the Dutch. Massive exodus of um, Papuan left. And that is the beginning of heavy bombardment and uh, massacres and 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 this enforcement of being Indonesian. So there was a lot of massacres up in the central highlands. It's sadly that it's not documented, but there was a research that really give a perspective in just before Indonesia took over in 1969 onwards in terms of full administration. The indigenous population of the Papuan people and their neighboring um, brothers and sisters in Papua New Guinea both were just under one million Um, that this was in the 60s late 60s and as we progress in time Papua New Guinea now has eight million indigenous population whereas the indigenous population of West Papua, the total population is 4 million now, but indigenous make up one third of that population. We represent only 1.5 million. The rest are Mm transmigrants. So since that occupation, the genocide, as you highlighted earlier, is what we are experiencing. And even on the streets now, one indigenous person equivalent to another, like one is to five transmigrants. You hardly see a lot of the indigenous people now on the streets and many in terms of the numbers especially our leaders resistance leaders were assassinated and uh, imprisoned or or killed and there, there are numerous names that are assassinated in broad daylight and and particularly it's the women and children where this aerial bombardment that took place in the central highlands there was this be uh, a case of Mapenduma um, bloodshed was, or There was a massacre. There was another cases that happened in uh, Wamena and then on the island of Biak where they we wiped out nearly one of the tribe. And there is a particular area where there's no more tribal um, group that are living there.
3: They're just and like gone. gone? They're just been moved out gone. or killed or both? No,
1: killed, disappeared. No one occupied that village and or that oh. clan anymore so these are the stories of like yeah in terms of the genocide there's lack of research or investigation into um, these realities that are happening so that gives a bit of that context there are many western uh, researchers making conclusion that oh it's only half a million Papuans that have died under the indonesian brutal occupation but for us even family names uh, tribal names are disappearing, um, my name, family name is Kareni, and I can only count, it's only my brother, uh, my dad's siblings or brothers, and they could be only three or four with the similar Kareni family name. And, and that's it. Even right now, any, anyone with the family name of Wenda are the target of the security operations. When I said security, it's a combined police and military mm-hmm. um operation and because of the resistance leader benny wenda lives in uk and has carried out diplomatic um, efforts to really highlight our liberation struggle then they use that to target any wenda
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh anyone with the Wenda. even in a in a high school if your surname is wenda you'll become the target of the security forces you'll be harassed they will follow you to your homes, and they will find out about if you are, you are connected with the liberation movement. And that is happening. And sadly, it really scares many of our Papuan, to even children, to even go to school. The
3: story I read that made me reach out to you, and mahalo nui to our Maori sister, Sina Brown Davis, for the connection. The story that hit me like a hard slap in the face was or is about the death, I think it was on November 2nd of Philip Karma, a longtime campaigner and advocate for West Papuan independence. Just so people know, he was found on a, a beach in, I think it's pronounced Jayapura, Indonesia, and the cause of his death was said to be drowning, but there's quite a bit of speculation about the veracity of the official report. You just mentioned about leaders being disappeared and forced into exile. Can you talk a little bit about the life of Philip Karma and explain why you and I'm going to assume a lot of West Papuans don't believe his death was accidental?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Philip Karma is a courageous, brave, fearless, and the father of many youth um, nowadays that we see him as now a symbol of. Uh, non-violent resistance in West Papua. He dedicated his life um, as a young man when he was working, studying and then go through the formal education, but noticing the brutality that happens every day to families, to loved ones and fellow uh, activists. So he decided in 1998, um, in July, to organize that peaceful demonstration to occupy the water tower on the island of Biak for three days. And he organized it in such a way that even this military going to be surrounding and going to forcefully disperse um, demonstrators, he said, stay put. He was lucky to miss that at the time. But There were many, hundreds and hundreds of activists, um, like just civilians were brutally shot dead. Many were taken out to the Navy ship and drowned in the sea. Mm -hmm. Eyewitness account, survivors telling the story. And one of the survivors uh, is an elder, a mom. We call Mama, Mama Tineke. She was a survivor of uh, military rape, torture in prison saw other women in the prison, how the military abuse, sexually abused them. Um, and yet she was resilient and she was praying and she escaped. For some reason, there was a window she was praying and there was this window that she just followed. And that window was the rescue of her life. And she had escaped death as well. Philip Karma at the time didn't um, wasn't arrested, but was amongst those that were brutally um, beaten and it didn't stop him he again into 2000 i remember as a very small boy and there was papuan leaders meeting and my my dad we were hosting well family were hosting these um, meetings and it was my memory of philip karma uh, very vibrant when you're talking to him energetic very energetic and high spirit And talking to all the leaders, those who are the the freedom fighters, like from the defense side, the military wing, the diplomatic wing, and the civil resistance wing, everyone comes together and they talk about, let's occupy the streets, the universities now. So in 2000, 2001, there was massive nonviolent actions that was carried out. And the clandestine movement back then with networking was amazing. So that's... Period of like almost 10 years between 2000 till 2010, the nonviolent strategic actions were at its height. In 2004, he, uh, Philip Kama, organized one of these massive demonstrations that led to um, Abe Bloodshed. And then him and another fellow organizer, Pakage, were detained, arrested, and charged for treason. And there's part of that treason charges is um, for raising the Morningstar flag. That Morningstar flag landed him 15 years in prison. Just for and raising the proudly. West
3: Papuan flag, he he spent 15 years in prison?
1: Yes, for peaceful demonstration, raising the morning staff flag um is deemed by the Indonesian government and its security forces as prison and they w- he was the first person to be charged under that law, yeah, and was sentenced for fifteen years and that didn't stop him, even um advocacy from various human rights organizations, human rights Watch called it the political prisoner of conscience, yet he remained committed. Every time, every um, visits, I made two visits to see him in prison, in Abepora prison, near Jayapura, and he said, I never committed a crime. I never killed anyone. I never um, do any crime, but I'm proud that I raised the Morningstar flag. And if it landed me 15 years, I want the future generation To fill up all Indonesian prisons, just simply raising that morning staff flag. Mm -hmm. And that is very inspiring to hear when he was in prison and bravely talk about that. So we view um, him as the father of the nonviolent resistance. And to hear his death really shocked many of us. Thank you. was in prison up until the presidential re- remission um, decree like yeah, to release him. But they, they at the time tried to make it a condition that he has to admit guilty so that then he'll be released. He didn't. He maintained his political bargain. He said, I will, if you release me, I'm not signing to any condition, but release me on the condition that I didn't commit um, any crime but to raise that morning star flag of the people. And it made a bit of a big impact as well on the ground at the time of this announcement of releasing some of the political um, leaders, uh, prisoners. And so he was one of those um, key leaders that were released under remission without any condition from the state, even though they tried. And we welcomed him out of the prison like a hero. Mm. And I can recall at the time in um, 2012 after that, that, we, as he came out of the prison gates, he was lifted and just walked. People walked the street out from the prison with him to his home. Mm. And since then he has been the key um, negotiator between the Papuan leaders and the Indonesian people in the authority to find a peaceful resolution to the um, self-determination and sovereignty struggle of our people. And there has been some engagement and this already kind of like seeing there's a progress leading towards some form of preliminary kind of like engagement with priority agendas of the, looking at the, his, the grievances, historical human rights, political grievances, and all of that combined with the current humanitarian crisis that is happening and need to de- demilitarize
3: you mentioned earlier when we spoke that you thought karma's death was not an accident can you talk a little bit about that and explain why you think it it was an assassination
1: well philip karma grew up in on an island and his upbringing all his life is ocean swimming diving and decades now for for 40 years he's known amongst the community as a master diver and so his death what the what the media or what the word has been spread that he was is drowned. One cannot really kind of like comprehend at this stage, like for many um, indigenous Papuans, knowing that Philip Kama is an icon in the nonviolent campaign. And so it remains a mystery. His death remains a mystery.
3: What happened after his death?
1: So straight after that morning, second of November, when the word spreads that Philip Kama was found on the beach the base chief, there was already um, word going around, you know, there needs to be an investigation. There were the witnesses there. So it's important to really just get a, a chronology of events, how this unfold. Sadly, security forces came in quickly, wrapped up the body, take it not to the general hospital, but to the military hospital in Jayapura, and no visits from anyone except the daughters. And while in the hospital, there was a pre-recorded video from the daughter by whoever, and you know it's easily can be tell because that's the security hospital, so no one else can be is allowed. And it's under duress condition that the daughter made this statement while at the inside the hospital that she believed that the death is natural cause from drowning there is nothing suspicious of the death, and the family are happy to proceed further for burial the next day so this message when it came out in the next what in the evening of that same day that really pull, brings everyone into question their intention and why this is done in such a way that it's so quickly that everyone still haven't even processed the debt and no investigation and usually in the context of Papua we allow three days of mourning where families come together and sit there and go through that sorry business mm-hmm. um, and that's critically important in the, in the cultural context of us as Papuan um, indigenous people And that didn't even happen. So that really brought the masses out to the streets and to occupy the hospital immediately straight from midday until 4 p.m. that evening.
3: That's very suspicious. And I'm sorry that his family and Papuans didn't have the opportunity to mourn him in a traditional way. That kind of a show of peaceful protest, what is that met with by the military, by the Indonesian government? What, how are they greeted?
1: well it's met with military presence where no one is allowed to march with the morning star flag or any attributes that is of a national symbol so there was a moment when they're going to bring the body from the hospital back to his home it's three kilometer walk of distance so everyone youth, just occupy the streets and it was nearly a kilometer where the marches, mourners coming together and walk. And there was a flag, some of the resistance symbols. Um, Police just come in with truckloads and just forcefully break the flags or anything that they see, like free Philip Kama or free West Papua. So there was a a moment where intense, very intense, the police coming in, police and military. But because a couple of um, human rights defenders were kind of like calling out on the state and also media to monitor it very close. There was a quick decision to allow um, procession from that then onwards till the burial. That allowing opponents um, to come out and continue with, um, you know, uh, expressing sorrow with whatever attributes. And so that was um, really good to see that moment when um, the Munich Star flag um, could be flown. And then overnight, there was, the security presence were very much beside the family, the immediate family. So any negotiations, uh, sorry business, was not even going ahead. Even conversation around the investigation, Papua and human rights, lawyers trying to come and talk with the family, the security intelligence, everyone were like, no, tomorrow. So there was that intense moment of between the family, the state authorities, and uh, the community at large, which at the end of the day everyone wants the best and wants to celebrate his life as well, and so everyone decided that okay, I'm on the condition tomorrow for the burial procession, uh, Philip Kama is not going to be handled by the family but by the the movement, a uh, free was Papua movement, and his body will be wrapped with the morning stuff flag, and we will. Got the vehicle with the morning star flag from his house all the way to the burial procession, and that next day it took four to five hours long march from his house, and because of the road was packed. Seven p.m. they arrived at the burial site, and do the cultural procession, and by nine p.m. Um, his body was laid to rest
3: in the flag that he went to prison for.
1: Yes, the morning star flag on the. On the coffin as well as the vehicle that takes him to the burial site. And that was really the moment we mourn and celebrate his life. But at the same time, um, his death uh, brings memory of another Papuan leader, Arnold Up. He's a Papuan psychologist and anthropologist um, in the late 60s to mostly in the 70s. Um, He went around the Papua and collected songs and chants in different tribal language groupings, collected it, recorded it, and archived it. And the music becomes popular, and many tribal groups can relate to the songs, and it kind of really builds the spirit of nationalism. And that makes him become a threat to the state. And in the early 80s, he was in, in prison day trying to stop him. And one way to do that is to arrest and detain him. And while he was in prison, he still wrote songs. And one of his last songs that he was in prison, um, he wrote in Bahasa is Hidup Suwatu Mystery, or in English, Mystery of Life. So this particular song reflects Papua and the people that we are living in prison. So the opening line is, this is the life full of mystery. You can't imagine, neither foresee. This is how it is, the reality. I am a prisoner living within this world, but what I dream for is what I wait for. There's nothing else, only freedom. Um, A prison guard who knows him very well smuggled that song and gave it to the wife. And this song is, Becomes really known amongst the community, and but his death um, after recording that song is also similar. The scenario, the same place, the beach, um, base chief is where he was assassinated. And now Philip Kama, 40 years later, Philip Kama, another icon in our resistance movement, died in a mysterious death there.
3: In the same place, your band, the Black Orchid String Band recorded this song, and we're gonna end the show listening to the song. And I want listeners to know where they can get in touch with you or how they can get in touch with you and learn more about the movement to Free West Papua. How might people contact you and, and
1: what can we do? There's a lot of ways, like creative ways that people can engage and we could build a collaborative actions together, but also it's important to co- connect our struggles together anti-militarization, anti-colonization, as well as the um, right to self-determination, our sovereignty. This is the other struggles when we embed or weave it together, we become more powerful force today. And so these are the issues, um, particularly for West Papua. um, Sovereignty, right to self-determination is key, and this is where we can connect together. We, through the political diplomatic wing of the movement, it's ULMWP. Or United Liberation Movement for West Papua. People can check the website, as well as um, the free West Papua campaign on Facebook, free West Papua campaign on Instagram. And myself, I'm also active on Twitter. So it's Ronnie Kareni, uh, my full name, R-O-N-N-Y-K-A-R-E-N-I. I tweet a lot there and also update a lot there. But um, an opportunity like me is coming and speaking with you, um, sister, it means a lot. And this could be the beginning of working together and continue to spread this the voice, our voice and message um, to the masses. And we can use this medium to amplify the voice of the voiceless. So I appreciate this opportunity to speak as well. Thank you.
3: Ronnie Karimi, it's my pleasure and my honor and First Voices Radio is grateful that you were able to help us understand something about your people and your homeland and the struggle for West Papuan self-determination. And yes, of course, it'll be great to have you on the show again to keep us informed about the struggle of your people. So mahalo nui loa to you, Ronnie. Aloha.
1: Hormat. Respect.
3: All the songs featured in this week's show are from the Black Orchid String Band. And you can find their beautiful self-titled album at bandcamp.com. First, we heard the West Papuan Anthem. Next up was Country Mama, then Yako Pamane. and after that was B Pamade. Your host, Tiokas and Ghost Horse, will be back in the studio next week. Mahalo nui for sharing this sacred space in time with me. We we'll leave you now with the Black Orchid String Band's rendition of a lovely, heartbreaking song, the writing and original recording of which cost a much loved Papuan songwriter and cultural icon, Arnold App, his life. Here is Mystery
2: of Life. This is